There are certain images that are hard to shake. I'm going to start the show today with a couple of those. The first is from August of 2021 in Kabul, Afghanistan. The United States was in the middle of pulling out of this country, and it was going poorly. The Taliban is in control of Afghanistan. The country's president has fled, and Western countries are scrambling to get people out. I did not, nor did anyone else, see a collapse of an army that size in 11 days. The Kabul airport got overrun with people. The runway, too. Throngs of desperate Afghans trotted alongside military planes as they tried to take off. Some clung to aircraft as they taxied around. And others, against all odds, found a way to scramble on board. There's a picture of what happened next, captured by a military photographer. The belly of a cargo plane packed with people, not a seatbelt in sight. I can still see it if I close my eyes. Within days, scores of people, like the ones in that photograph, they were touching down in the U.S. Well, as the Taliban tighten their grip on Afghanistan, thousands of people are desperately trying to leave. Many are now landing in planes at Dulles International Airport. As the seven years. Uh, she is uh, seven years, and this one is one years. This man, who works security at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, arrived with his wife and three young children. They're tired, but grateful. I'm very happy because... These images of what happened after these refugees landed, they're the ones that stuck with Elena McFarlane. You know, we were all happy when people were arriving at Dulles. I remember this picture of like, this dad and this little girl walking in all smiling, and I thought, like, okay, now you're here, but <laughs> what's going to happen to you? <laughs> like, you know, it can't be easy. Elena lives just outside D.C., a few miles from where refugees were arriving. And I think it's fair to say these images changed her life. After she saw them, she joined a volunteer army of sorts, one that tries to help Afghan refugees however they can. She's still got her day job. She's a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, actually. But in her spare time, she's a kind of fixer. She collects and delivers items right to refugees' doors. Today I'm taking a day off. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Last month, she let one of our producers tag along with her. And I'm doing some distributions. Usually I drop off the items and then continue my commute to Baltimore. So then it's like kind of on the way. Elena and a few other volunteers have a Google Doc where they keep a running list of things Afghan families have requested. If people need cleaning supplies, Elena finds them. If a kid doesn't have a winter coat... Elena might end up thrifting for it. She's on Buy Nothing groups on Facebook. She really knows her way around Craigslist. I call it like Tetris or bingo. I don't know. But I need to find the items and then find the family that needs the item. Part of the problem is that sometimes just like Tetris, you start to accumulate stuff in the house. And then it's like my husband gets mad because he's like, why do we have all this stuff in the basement? <laughs> and then I have to deliver it. Right now, Elena's pulled up in front of the Calvert Hall apartment complex in suburban Maryland, a row of yellow brick buildings three and four stories high. At the entrance is this big banner. It reads, We Welcome Refugees. In the months since the U.S. pullout, this building has become a hub for newly arrived Afghan people. Elena's got a toy train set in her trunk, along with some baby clothes, and not one but three sewing machines. She's trying to figure out how to distribute it all. 
Salam. Salam. Hi, Selena. Salam. I brought the sewing machine for you. Elena makes runs like this at least two or three times a week. No chai, no chai. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. She says the sewing machines are popular because they mean a family can both repair their own clothes and make things to sell. The ones she's distributing today have just been refurbished. And actually, they were given to us broken. And then there's a very smart young lady, Sheila, who is also a refugee. And she fixed airplanes and and helicopters back in Afghanistan. And now she fixes the sewing machines so we can give them to other families. She's pretty, pretty amazing. So if this system seems ad hoc to you, a volunteer with an overflowing basement playing hooky from work to deliver old sewing machines that have been rehabbed by an airplane mechanic? That's because it is. And it's why we wanted to follow Elena around, to figure out if in the months since these Afghan refugees arrived, the system to support them has gotten any more robust. Elena says, not really. There is no other system than you and me. So we, it's just, um, and it, the aid comes in waves. And uh, my worry is that, you know, we had a lot of volunteers, a lot of donations when the crisis was in the news and then it goes down and the need is still there. We There's still thousands of people in third countries like Albania, Poland, Qatar, Abu Dhabi. They are in camps waiting to be processed. Um, so we always needing support, even when it's not on the news. And that leads to this whole other question. If an American volunteer thinks this system is haphazard, how does it feel to the families themselves? Today on the show, the U.S. has welcomed tens of thousands of Afghan refugees. We're going to visit with a few of them to ask, how's that going? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. 
This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights now! Gay rights! With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back. It was one of our show's producers, Elena Schwartz, who went down to Maryland to visit with the Afghan families and the volunteers who were helping them. The whole time she was reporting, she was struck by this one fact— that here in the U.S., all the work that goes into creating a life for newly arrived Afghan people, it's outsourced to people like Elena McFarlane, that volunteer you met at the top of the show. After following the volunteer Elena on her rounds, our Elena stuck around a while to get to know a few families. I'll let her take it from here. One of the families living at Calvert Hall that's the apartment complex where the volunteer Elena was making her deliveries, is Lila and Basir. Those aren't their real names. They've still got family and friends who are back in Afghanistan, and even here, they're worried that the Taliban could target their loved ones if it gets out that they left the country. In the story, you're mostly going to hear Lila's voice. For now, she's more confident in English than Basir is. Thank you so much. It's nice to meet you. Same here. The story of how Lila and Basir ended up at Calvert Hall is crazy, but also familiar. Lila began working with the U.S. government back in 2008. She wasn't involved with the military, Mostly, she did operational management for nonprofits, including managing nonprofits related to women's health and family planning. When the Taliban researched, though, they drew up a list of people who'd collaborated with Americans. And Lila's name was on it. We begin with Afghanistan and the dramatic fall of the capital. Just today, President Biden sending more troops. Lila knew her family needed to get out of the country fast. Thousands of Afghans now scrambling to get out. The Kabul airport packed earlier today. We have teams. When the crowds flooded the Kabul airport last August, Lila, Basir, and their four kids were there. But in the stampede towards the gates, their passports got lost, and they had to go back home. When they got back, they found the place had been ransacked by the Taliban. So all our house was searched by Taliban. Luckily, there wasn't much for them to find. When the Taliban took Kabul, Lila's office told her to destroy anything she had related to her work. Her ID card, her computer files, anything that would have been incriminating was already gone. So there was nothing at the house. They came and searched the house, and some people took whatever was left, like our 
uh, house items, these things, and then we were uh, we went to my sister's house. Just were you were you there when they searched the house? Were you in the no. house? No, we were at my sister's house that night, and we received a call from our landlord, and the house owner, and he said that, that a Taliban came to your house and they were asking me for your phone number, and he helped us and he said that they have left to Pakistan to his brother and they are no more in Afghanistan. Lila's landlord lying to the Taliban like that, telling them the family had left the country, it might have saved her life. For a while, the family stayed with Lila's sister. Eventually, when it became clear they probably weren't going anywhere anytime soon, they found a place nearby. Lila went back to work, but she did her job from home to keep a low profile. And Basir grew a big beard to try to pass as a Talib. This ended up being useful whenever the family confronted the Taliban. Like at the checkpoints all over Kabul. Lila says Basir looking religious helped the family avoid extra scrutiny. So whenever they were seeing his beard, I said that, okay, he's our own. Just let them go. <laughs> yeah. I just uh, make friendship because of her. To not some, some issue comes, then I will help her. Uh, uh, yeah, to, he just wanted to be like a backup to me, that if something happens, he should have someone known in their group so that they can help us. Even there was like The beard the came in handy again the next time their home was searched. Lila and Basir were keeping their bags packed all the time, just in case they got clearance to evacuate Kabul. When the Taliban announced they'd be doing home inspections, Lila got worried they'd see the bags and get suspicious. When the Talibs showed up at their door, she called Basir and told him to come home. And then he reached home and they were just near to enter the room. And then when he got entered to the house and they said, oh, sorry, it is our own brother. So just leave searching their house and they just escaped the house. So it was very good to use advantage of that situation. It's still in Afghanistan. Yeah. Mr. Talib. The whole time, they were searching for a way out of the country. Basir ended up finding the family's passports at a pawn shop near the airport. Someone must have grabbed them and left them there. But even with the right documents, once U.S. forces were gone, getting evacuated was next to impossible. And there wasn't much time. Lila's passport was set to expire on June 15th of this year, and the Taliban wasn't granting renewals. Still, Lila kept reaching out to resettlement organizations and lobbying for her family's evacuation. And finally, almost a year after the Taliban took Kabul, it paid off. One night, when one of the kids was playing on her phone, Lila got the call. And I received the call. It was midnight, and my children was playing in my mobile. Fortunately, they were awake. Do you remember what they were playing? Yeah, they were uh, mostly, he's playing with um, Bozi Mutarjiyas. Um, Minecraft? Yeah, Minecraft. Minecraft? Yeah. He loves so it. That's my second sign. Your son was playing Minecraft yeah. on your phone, and then what? You got a phone call? Yeah, then he brought me the mobile and said, Mom, Mom, there is a call for you, and someone is talking in English. So when I received the call, I was very happy, and it was from the State Department, and they said that uh, your name has been included in the list, and you will soon receive a call from Support International for the COVID test, and you are planned for evacuation on 15th of June which was the last day for expiry of my passport. So they made you... So, you know, it was still... So you they know. couldn't evacuate you until the last day of your passport, but you still had to take a COVID test to make sure yes. you could travel. <laughs> yes. Their first stop was a military base in Doha, Qatar. 
They ended up staying there for 11 weeks, living in a giant tent with another 1,500 families, everybody sleeping in curtained-off bunk beds. Finally, at the end of August, they were able to board a flight to D.C. Lila says they didn't really know what was waiting for them when the plane landed. When we get in the airport, there was someone, and his name was Diane. Uh, he was helping our caseworker, and he was working with our caseworker. He said that, you have an apartment, we already rented for you, a three-room apartment. Then I was so excited to see it, because people were saying different things, that like the rooms are very small and it's not organized and it's very dirty. So I was just wondering that I should reach home sooner and see that what, uh, how things are. Lila says she's relieved that her family is safe from the Taliban. And she does feel safe here. But starting your life over isn't easy. More on that when we come back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So, after fighting for nearly a year to get out of Afghanistan, Lila and Basir are here. Calvert Hall, a squat apartment building right off the highway. They live with their four kids, Baman, Baruz, Aziz, and Homa. Aziz is the baby, but Lila tells me that Homa gets spoiled the most because she's the only girl. Homa's the only kid who gets a room to herself. The three boys all sleep together in one space with three beds and some toys. In Homa's room, there are little plastic dolls in all different colors taped to the wall above her bed. She took me to the Walmart and just bought all these dolls. I love them. Yeah, and she said that I'm not sleeping alone. <laughs> so they're giving company to her. All around the apartment, there are traces of the place they left behind. The floor is covered in handmade rugs they bought back in Afghanistan when they learned they could only bring $1,500 with them when they left. Most other things in the apartment were provided by aid groups or found on the curb. Aziz has been sleeping in a bed covered in pictures of puppies from Paw Patrol that Basir brought in the other day. Yeah, we got a small uh, bed from the trash. One of the family just threw it away. They didn't maybe need it. And we just fixed it because it has some cartoons, and the small one likes it. What was in the bed when I came in? The giant bear. <laughs> Where did the... Yeah, the bear. That was also in the trash. We just washed it and just put it for him to play with, and he loves to sleep with it. It's so sweet. And it's also this one, too. Yeah. <laughs> and he also took this one from the trash, you know. 
mostly she, uh, whenever he's walking with his father, so he's looking for these toys mm -hmm. around and just pick them and bring them home. <laughs> the thing I kept noticing, no matter what we talked about, is just how optimistic Lila is. I can't even say she's trying to stay positive. She just is. The only thing that bothers us are the roaches. <laughs> Our enemy, that's the only problem we have here. The rest, everything is going very well. That's cockroaches, and they're all over the apartment. The family has also had to deal with bouts of bed bugs. Yeah, so my friend was asking me, how are you doing with the roaches? So she was asking about it. I said that I'm, I hate these roaches because they are more tough than Taliban. <laughs> I got rid of Taliban. I'm sure I will not get rid of roaches anymore. <laughs> These kinds of problems that Lila is describing, they're common among Afghans who settled here. The fact is, it's hard to find anything better. The people who've left Afghanistan reach the U.S. with no credit score and most of the time, no money. Resettlement agencies pay the first three months of rent for them, but after that, they're mostly on their own. Which means Afghans need to live in places that don't require a credit check and let you move in without a security deposit. There aren't too many nice apartments that you can rent under those conditions. Afghans do receive a little money at first to help, but Lila says it doesn't go far enough. So we are two adults, we receive 560 on a monthly basis now. From this month, it's effective. And we already received the first installment of 280, which we bought all these bags and school bags and these things. But when the money is gone, if let's say you run out of money before the end of the month, you know, you then we have to cover ourselves. We have to be careful spending the money. But I'm sure we'll get a job. <laughs> as soon as we get our social security, that's the main concern for us now. That's the other thing that Lila and Basir really need. Social security numbers. Without social security numbers, Lila and Basir can't work. They also can't open a bank account, get a debit card, or do any of those normal day-to-day -day things that being banked allows you to do. They don't have a car, for example, but they can't order an Uber because doing that requires a debit or credit card. Lila tells me that when they have to buy groceries, they bring their things home in a shopping cart. Then they walk the cart back to Walmart, and then they walk home again. Usually that whole thing takes at least an hour. Supposedly, the resettlement agency filed the necessary paperwork to get them their numbers back in September. The cards were supposed to be mailed to them at Calvert Hall, but more than a month later, nothing's turned up. So today, our plan is to go to the Social Security office and see if we can track the numbers down. Basir grabs everyone's passports, Lila packs us some water, and we head out. There is a bus stop there. So from that bus stop, we take 10, uh, a, yeah. T18, and then we then we go to another Carrollton station. From there, we take another bus, and then we go to Social Security office. Uh -huh. So just to be clear, in order to get to the Social Security office, we have to take one bus to a big station where we can transfer to another bus. This whole trip would be only a 16-minute drive, but using the bus, it takes us over an hour to get there. New Carrollton Station. While we're riding, I ask Lila what sort of work she and Basir plan to look for once they get their social security cards. Is there a specific kind of job that you want to find? Actually, for the time being, no. Whatever job that's available, I will do it. 
because I just want to have a source of income for the family. Job work is work, you know, it's not shame to do any work, but it is a sh it's shame to just sit at home and just look for the government to help you. What Lila just said about how it's shameful to sit at home and rely on the government's help, it really struck me. Because the irony, of course, is that in order to work, Lila and Basir need the government's help. Which brings us to the Social Security office. When we finally get there, rain has started to fall. There's a queue of people outside the door being shepherded one at a time into the building every few minutes by a security guard. It takes about 20 minutes of waiting, at which point we're all pretty wet, but eventually we're up. Uh, are you next in line? Yeah. Okay, so what are you here for? Uh, for Social Security. My Car? Social Security, Social yeah. Security card? Yeah. Is it your first time or are you getting a replacement? It's my first time. First time? Yeah. Do you have all your immigration uh, yeah. documents? Yes. And do you have the application filled out? No, no, I didn't do that. Okay, I'll give you the application. And you're applying for one, two, three, four, six person. My six wife people. is already inside. Your wife is already inside? Yeah. Okay, you can go sit with her. Yeah, thank you. Um, the guard gives Basir a slip with a number on it, Q554. He warns us up front that the numbers won't be called in order. Inside, it looks like the DMV, with people slumped in hard plastic chairs waiting to be called up to different windows. Lila gets right to work, filling out a form for each member of the family. 0892 to window E. 0892 window E. The whole time we're listening and waiting, there's no discernible logic to which numbers go when. Once we've been there for over an hour, Lila starts watching the clock. The kids get home from school in two hours, which means there's only an hour left before we have to catch the bus back home. Second call, A-477, window E, A-477, window E. After some scrambling, Lila manages to get in touch with a neighbor who says she can watch the kids for an hour after they get home. And at 321, they finally call Q554. We go to one of the windows where the agent takes the forms from Lila and looks them over. He's brusque, but not unkind. And then he tells us something unexpected. Apparently, Lila and Basir already have social security numbers. In fact, the whole family does. And they've been mailed to Calvert Hall, to a stranger. It turns out, back when Lila and Basir's immigration paperwork was first started, they needed to provide the government with an American address. Obviously, they didn't have an American address yet. So they provided a point of contact instead, the relative of an old colleague of Lila's, who, as luck would have it, also got resettled at Calvert Hall. Only this guy didn't know the family personally. So whatever mail he'd received addressed to them, they weren't getting it. Then the agent gives Lila five post-it notes with five social security numbers on them. Apparently, Basir's was the only card that hadn't been sent out yet, and the guy tells us it should be mailed in the next two weeks. Just think about that for a second. You're in a strange country where your ability to work, save money, get a loan, pretty much everything is dependent on having a special number attached to your name. And after weeks of waiting, calling, searching, finally you get it. This magic number handed to you on a post-it. 
<laughs> okay. So we are all done. Yes. And what happened? What happened in there? So I should. I must admit that you have been lucky for us. <laughs> and so today we came here and visited the office. So fortunately, we received our social security numbers. Now I'm so excited to apply for the job, and I'm waiting to update my friends and my close relatives. They should know that I received my social security. So this is a great and excitement news for everyone. <laughs> I still really am amazed, though, that you were so calm and confident. Really, I mean, you just you spoke to this guy and you told him what you needed. And you were so patient and you didn't get mad when they called a million other numbers but I guess the thing that I'm wondering is okay even if you're able even if you have self-control right even if you can do that on the outside on the inside were you angry were you frustrated because I was frustrated we were sitting there I was thinking just it's just so many hoops to jump through just to have a, a normal life there are always obstacles, you know. There's all we have been through so much bad time. So this is the very good time that at least we get something positive in return, you know. So that's why I can always be positive. <laughs> I only understand there is a great day after the bad days, you know. So I'm always hopeful for the great day to come. There are more than eighty eight thousand Afghans who have come to the US over the last fifteen months. Thousands more are still waiting in secondary countries to get here. Of those people, Lila is one of the lucky ones. She speaks good English. Everyone in her family is, for the most part, healthy. She and Basir are able-bodied, and once Basir gets his social security card, hopefully they'll be employed. But for the others? Who's helping them learn an unfamiliar language? Who's taking charge of their health care? How many of them will figure out the buses? navigate the social security office and get the documentation they need? How many of them will be just left waiting? That's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to show us some love is to support us by joining Slate Plus. The way to do that is to go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus Slate Plus is our membership program. It gives you all kinds of great stuff, like free access to all of Slate.com, ad-free podcasts like this very podcast. Anyway, check it out. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, and Victoria Dominguez. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. Special thanks to all the Afghan families who led us into their lives and helped us to understand what it is like to start from scratch. I'm Mary Harris. I'll be back in this feed tomorrow. Catch you then. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. 
His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.